The Craig Fawley Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Lynette's Shrimp House, located in Highland Park. It's Metro Detroit's premier destination, serving juicy fried shrimp, fish, and wings, alongside soul food sides and new additions to the menu, like turkey tacos and desserts. Located at 13548 Woodward in Highland Park, just north of the Davison, Lynette's is open for takeaway, noon to 8, Tuesday and Thursday, noon to 10 p.m. Friday and Saturday, and noon to 5 p.m. on Sunday. Call now, get some Lynette's. Hey, greetings, everybody. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit on this Wednesday. Glad to have you with me again today. A busy week. Got a lot of stuff on the agenda. Of course, the Mackinac Policy Conference is going on up on the island. I am not there, but I am keeping tabs on what is happening. So in just a moment, my friend Nancy Kaffer of the Detroit Free Press will join me again to talk about some of the things that are going on up there today. We'll talk a bit about what Mayor Duggan had to say yesterday and also talk a little bit about some of the public perceptions about what happens up at the conference. You'll want to hear this conversation, I do believe. And of course, it is a double-decker show once again today. Uh, pretty excited to have joining me on the program today, David Nafsker. Now, he is the executive director for the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Governors and Premiers. His job is to coordinate the efforts of eight U.S. governors and two Canadian premiers to grow the region's $6 trillion economy, also while trying to protect the environment. And what we are going to be talking about today is the fact that, you know, we've seen the impacts of, of climate change. We're dealing with them firsthand today, as a matter of fact, as uh, my basement uh, is still dry, but hoping it stays that way. But we think about this often in terms of it's going to be expensive and it's going to be problematic. But is there opportunity for people to invest in this type of technology that is going to solve some of these looming problems that we do have? should be an interesting conversation, so stick around for the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Looking for the latest news and information about our great city of Detroit? Head to DeadlineDetroit.com for one-stop shopping for the most important stories of the day. Deadline Detroit has some of the best journalists in town, providing original reporting, videos, and podcasts that keep you in the know about everything happening in Detroit. Become a member today, and you'll automatically be entered into a drawing for prizes, including gift cards to some of Detroit's best restaurants. Go to DeadlineDetroit.com slash membership. Glad to have you with me once again today. And as you know, normally this time of, well, not this time of year, but normally for this conference, I would be up on Mackinac Island for the annual policy conference hosted by the Detroit Regional Chamber. I, of course, am not there this year, but... I'm lucky in that I have a special correspondent for the first time in my career. I have my own actual <laughs> correspondent that I am basically just plucking for free from my friends at the Detroit Free Press. Nancy Kaffer, of course, on the editorial board at the Detroit Free Press. You see her writing in the paper all the time. You may agree with it. You may not. That's the beauty of editorials. Nancy, welcome back. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's nice to be here, Craig. I know, and and I do appreciate your assistance, um, and uh, I'm living somewhat vicariously through you, as you are, I'm sure, enjoying the conference, uh, although it is a lot more work than people realize it is mm -hmm. for journalists, um, you know. Uh, especially those of us like us that cover politics most of the time, mm -hmm. the amount of freebies that we get is zero. So, yeah. you know, people need to understand that. I want to address something else that sometimes comes up when people talk about the conference and whether it's a waste of time and whether or not the press has some sort of, you know, it's, it's weird or inappropriate for media to come to the conference. Because here's the thing. 
this is not a conference for the media. This is a conference that the chamber holds with the most powerful people in our state, the governor, um, not so much lawmakers this year because they're still working on the budget, but business leaders. And I guess the question I have to ask is, do you want this group up here doing things and making decisions without the press here watching what's going on, without trying to provide some level of accountability about what's happening? I mean, I don't. I think that it's a good idea to have media here covering stuff. So, yeah, there's there's no um, it, it's a lot of work and it but it's important. It's part of our jobs is to watch things that are going on. We have I'm an opinion writer, so I look for opinionated takes on things. My colleagues on the straight news side do really hard work reporting about what happened, trying to get answers out of powerful people who are grouped up here in one place where you can get at them. So it's just, you know, I know that there's some, you know, people like to dog on the conference, which is completely legit. But um, again, the media's role here is covering it, which is why we're here. Well, you know, and people need to remember, too, this used to go on without the press until I believe one radio station here in town actually started going. And then a couple of us said, you know, maybe there should be some room for some other people up there. Chambers work pretty hard to accommodate the media by actually setting up places where interviews can be done and uh, giving access to this so that we do have reporters up there fact checking some of the things that are being said on the stage, especially by elected officials, but also Mm -hmm. from the business leaders on the island. I mean, I, I read my Twitter feed while this is going on, and it's a whole bunch of reporters asking questions about a statement that somebody's made saying, well, the mayor just said this, but my data and my research and my reporting has shown this. Well, you know, and these are people who have outsized influence on our state and our state politics. They're people who personally make substantial campaign contributions. They are associated with political action committees that make substantial campaign contributions. Is that great? No. I mean, I think my opinion on dark money and big corporate money in politics, I've written a good bit about it. I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's good. But in the system that we have, um, there has to be accountability, transparency, and reporting on it. But anyway, that's not what you, uh, not what you call to talk about. Well, you know, but it is because this is, this is something that people talk about. Like I said, I have found value in being there. I've learned a tons of things and overheard some conversations over the course of my career on that island that gave me an idea of where they were headed when it came to some policy decisions, especially in the legislature back when all the legislators were there. Um, but, but let's talk about what is happening up there because, you know, one of the criticisms is sometimes that, you know, the politicians might not be getting the hard questions up there and I like it better when journalists have a seat at the table for like mm-hmm. a mayoral round table, as opposed to uh, business people, because it might not be the same level of hard hitting questioning uh, that you might get. Uh, but talk about Mayor Duggan yesterday. He had an opportunity to talk a little bit about what he wants his legacy to well, be and also what he thinks he needs to continue working on. No, I think we were all a little surprised. I thought, you know, in the recent years, the chamber has done a format of having someone like the mayor make a speech and then have a Q&A session later. And I think that's what I was expecting. I think when we talked about it yesterday, we were both expecting that. Other reporters up here were expecting that same format. This was 100% a Q&A with a journalist. Um, and, you know, it was it was not a speech. Uh, it was the mayor and his new um, planning director, who mm-hmm. is a very interesting and uh, thoughtful seeming person. But it was a, it was a, it was a Q&A with the two of them which was um, which was interesting, but you know not not quite what I was expecting. I was thinking that this might be one of the mayor's you know few public speeches before the election, but it wasn't really a public speech. You know they talked a lot about the work that has been going on. Um, Duggan continues to be proud of his 
demolition program of um, the way that he has uh, he he feels that he's improved things in neighborhoods that he has improved city services. Um, he talked a little bit about his hard line in um, giving his appointees time to make change and then you're dismissing them and moving on if they if they uh, have not made sufficient change. So you know it was a um, it was you know, again it was a it was a more what's the word I'm looking for? It's not scripted. It wasn't a scripted format because it was a live interview with with live questions. But it was uh, you know it, it felt very much along the lines of things that we've we've heard the mayor talk about before. Well, and. and- it also sounds as if it was uh, the type of agenda he wanted to talk about, as opposed to maybe a debate uh, that he'd have where you could start yeah. asking hard hitting questions about things like the crime rate in the city, uh, right. unemployment, equity, you know, the things that we all want answers about in the city. I mean, right. he did talk a bit about a focus away from uh, demolition and moving more towards rebuilding right. in, in terms of green space, parks and things like that. Yeah, no, he did talk about that, and that that's you know welcome to hear about. Um, he did not have a uh, media availability before or after that, and he, to the best of my knowledge, has not been out mingling in the crowd. So there really was no opportunity for journalists to ask him questions of any type, hard hitting or no. Um, but yeah, he you know he he wants. Of course, he's a candidate. He's a mayor, and he's a candidate running for office. Of course, he wants to talk about the things that he's gotten right, and not really talk about the things that he's gotten wrong. Um, yeah, but like you said, a lot of us have questions about equity. The mayor has consistently sort of rejected this idea of true Detroit, but I think that um, that's not a thing that most of us are buying into. There's there's definitely different standards of living in Detroit, depending on who you are and where you live. I think, you know, two to, the only, the, two Detroit's probably isn't enough There's to describe the, the situation. There's multiple Detroit's depending on who you are and where you live. Um, you know, and that's not acceptable. We all need to live in a city with the same access to services, the same um, quality of life, the same level of safety. So, sure. Uh, you know, okay. Uh, Nancy Kaffer, of course, my guest. She's at the Mackinac Policy Conference again today um, and, and giving us an update on what's been going on. Now, one person who has been making the rounds is Governor Whitmer. Uh, she's had, what, two press conferences, I think, uh, since this whole thing began, talking about various accomplishments and plans that she has uh, for her administration. Um But I'm wondering if there's been much talk about the budget agreement that uh, was announced uh, that also includes provisions for no mask mandates in schools and no vaccine passports of any type in Michigan. It seems like maybe she had to give in on that to get what she needed in terms of spending on schools and in public health and and child care. But it seems a weird thing to, to compromise on. I think that you have to read this closely, right? So what she has said when asked about that, and people have tried to pin her down a couple of times on this at her two press availabilities, um, what she has said is that when the budget is on her desk, she's going to ha- conduct a full legal review, and then she'll make her decision. She does have a line item veto. Which is a big deal, yes. Based on a legal review of the budget. So, um, I mean, you know, there's tactics and strategies, but to me, if you read that closely... I would expect that there's going to be some changes to the budget that she eventually signs. And and they don't have the votes to override that veto. So, I mean, if she does do the line item and exercises that she will be able to take those things out because, it, you know, that seems to get in the way of the Department of Public Health doing their actual job. Um, yes. Yes, indeed. And I, don't, and I don't think it's legal, which is why 
I mean, but she's talking about the concept of illegal review is that if there's unenforceable um, illegal language, like I don't, I don't know that you can restrict the powers of a department by a budget document. I think you would have to amend um, the, the concept. This yeah. is where we need our this is where we need our friends at Gongwer for that uh, discussion here. And so I'll get John Lindstrom on here in a couple of days uh, to sort of break that down. But I mean, it is important to note that they did reach a deal on this, and I mean, I think there is some historic money in here, uh, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to children in the state. And um, you know, it, it, it's nice to see them actually come to some sort of a deal because we thought that the concept of compromise between the Republicans in Lansing and the governor was pretty much done. We did. We did. So yeah, this is a this is a yeah this is a deal. They're moving forward on some things that, I mean, that I've wanted to see them do more investment in child in children, more investment in families. Um, this is of course the big question is a lot of this is one time money either from federal COVID relief or from um, sales tax boom from the stimulus uh, as a result of the stimulus. So, you know, I think the big question going forward is going to be, can we sustain these investments? Because you don't just put a bunch of money into early, you know, child care or something, and then it, you know, it solves the problem and you never have to do it again. You have to continue to sustain that level of spending. Continue to sustain? I write yeah. for a living, I promise. You have to sustain <laughs> that level of spending for it to have a meaningful impact. Well, especially if people are enjoying that benefit, taking it away from right. them later is going to be a problem. Uh, okay. Off topic a little bit, not really off topic, but you know, one of the things that, uh, this conference is actually pretty known for is bringing in some pretty high profile speakers uh, to talk and, and give presentations. Um, you know, I think Richard Florida is speaking later today, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Florida, the, the darling of 2010. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but I mean, has there been anybody that you've been listening to that you were surprised that you're like, well, that's actually pretty insightful and something that we learned something from while we were up here. Well, the historians, two historians spoke yesterday and you know, I, I mean, we're nerds. We like history. Those were the two most interesting. That most should interesting not be, that should not be a hallmark of nerdism. <laughs> Liking history should be something that we all appreciate. Fair, very fair. <laughs> um, but no, those were, those were good conversations. Um, I mean, the, the agenda is, I, I get that it was extremely hard to book speakers this year. I mean, you're having to make these decisions back um, months, months ago when no one knew what the deal was going to be like with the virus. And so they, they don't necessarily have those, um, those big names. There's no Jeffrey Canada on the agenda this year. You know, there's no, um, there's no Donna Brazil, you know, there, there's a, there are no, you know, thankfully no Newt Gingrich, uh, was here one year, many years ago. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yes. <laughs> right. But, um, but there, you know, it's it's a it's a lot of folks that you've seen and heard from before. Um, <laughs> one of the things I was actually kind of looking forward to was uh, a panel on the future of the Republican Party that was this afternoon because I'm really curious about that. It uh, the speakers were Michael Steele and oh, I'm going to blank on the name, but I'm looking at the agenda. Who was it? It was a person, O'Brien. Okay. I'm really uh, I'm really impressing well, everyone with my well, command of the fact there. Michael and, Steele's talking about the future of the Republican Party, even though he is on the outs with the Republican Party right, right now. Right. I mean, he's a Lincoln Project guy. Robert O'Brien, former okay. United States National Security Advisor in the Trump administration. And my big takeaway from that is that these two guys are not connected to the Republican Party. They were talking about how January 6th was a bright line, about how, you know, endorsing the big lie wasn't acceptable and pulling shows consistently 
that they are, you know, that that is not the belief of the majority of the Republican Party. So it was a little, I was, I was really hoping to get some insight there. And then I don't feel like it was particularly helpful. Yeah, well. I don't think they know necessarily uh, based on what I've been witnessing for the last uh, the last five years. Yeah, no, there still seems to be this belief that that somehow there's a true Republican Party of uh, people who are mainly defined by fiscal conservatism out there. And if there is, I see absolutely no evidence of it. No, probably not. Um, and I don't think we're going to get any real answers on that up in the island since a lot of the Republicans are not up there this time. So, That's uh, yeah. you know, we shall see. All right, Nancy, I'm going to let you get back to work. I know you've got a lot to do up there because your day is far from over uh, because once all the stuff ends, the writing begins. So mm-hmm. we'll be looking forward to reading your stuff. Uh, and of course, that includes social media posts and everything else that you're responsible for these days. So uh, we will leave you alone now. Well, thank you, Craig. Always a pleasure. All right, Nancy Kaffer, again, of the editorial board at the Detroit Free Press, joining us live today from Mackinac Island. We always appreciate it. Hey, welcome back to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Well, I didn't really go anywhere, but anyway, I'm glad you're here. Thank you very much. As I mentioned in the intro, uh, we're dealing with the effects of of climate change uh, right now. Uh, we are getting once in a hundred year floods. We have outdated infrastructure that is not necessarily being fixed at a pace that is going to meet our needs. There are a lot of different projects that a lot of different cities have that they don't necessarily have enough money for. Well, it doesn't mean the end of the world and it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to be taxed to death because what if some of that money could come in public, the form of public private partnerships or frankly investors could invest in these projects that we need to deal with some of these major problems, especially when it comes to our water infrastructure. Well, my next guest is trying to figure these things out and come up with an investment platform uh, that people can utilize to invest in projects that are going to be not just short term gain, but really things that set us up for the long term and make us more competitive while addressing some of our most pressing infrastructure issues. My guest is David Naftsker. He's the executive director for the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Governors and Premiers. And again, his job is to coordinate the efforts of eight U.S. governors and two Canadian premiers to grow the region's economy and protect the environment. David Naftsker, welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you very much, Craig. Nice to be with you. Well, you know, in, in taking a look at, uh, at at what you guys are working on uh, with your organization, I mean, I, I want to start with this because it seems that you're responsible in a way for, for herding lots of cats. When you're talking about different governments from different provinces, different nations, you know, different states, uh, different municipalities, uh, getting everybody on the same page has got to be incredibly difficult. It can be, but I think the strength of the work that we've been doing is how it actually has been unifying. You look over the past 20 years, which is the tenure I've had with the organization, and we've had people of all political parties and uh, a a very broad range of interests, but we've been able to bring people together around protecting the Great Lakes, growing the regional economy, and in a world that's ever more divided, this really has been a unifying force. And I think that's been one of the really gratifying things about how we've 
we've uh, been able to bolster that and uh, made this a space that people really want to come to and work together on. Well, protecting the Great Lakes, I mean, obviously, there are so many different things that go into that. Um, you know, we think about, I think most people think about protecting the Great Lakes with protecting the actual water supply that we have here, because there have always been rumors about pipelines and trucks leaving the, the, the basin and all these sorts of things. But it's, it's beyond that. Um, it, it's getting people to realize that there are actual opportunities uh, for them when it comes to improving our infrastructure, improving the grid, improving uh, the water systems that we have. Uh has it become easier in recent years to get people to recognize that there is not just a need to do these things, but an opportunity within that need? Yes. And we've come a long way in the last couple of decades from a point when we had uh, a lot of areas that were in crisis with toxic pollution, uh, wetlands that were being destroyed, uh, invasive species that were invading us regularly. Uh, so we, we went from a very defensive posture where we needed to make investments around restoration. And by bringing people together, succeeding with the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, other investments that have been made in Canada, I think it's really changed the narrative to where people are looking to see, okay, 20 years from now, how do we want to be thinking about our water? And are there ways we can incentivize and encourage sustainable uses so we don't wind up in the same place we were 20 years ago? So that's what we've been spending a lot of time thinking about. And it's been a creative process. It's been a place for innovation. And I think we've had a really big shift in mindset. And that's been exciting. Well, I, I think a lot of people's thoughts around, though, this kind of stuff, especially when we're talking about water infrastructure or or, or things like this, or, or even the grid, seem to be outside of the, the private sector. This The government has typically been responsible um, for, for maintaining and improving these systems. Uh, how difficult does it get to people to think of outside the box on that, that maybe there is a role for the private sector uh, to invest in these things. And, and again, uh, to see the opportunity within that stuff that traditionally has fallen into the government's hands. Change can be slow and hard. And for a long time in the region, we had a model of using water by taking it, degrading it in one way or another, and then looking to government to restore it after the fact. And we're trying to change that mindset to say, there are a whole range of opportunities here where we can actually incentivize and encourage water use in a way that is restorative and that is creating an improvement by the nature of the project or the investment or the intervention that's taking place. So we think that's really the future where anybody globally who cares about water, they should be looking in our region for opportunity. And whether that's water infrastructure or energy or other things that affect water and affect our people, that's really where we can be a global hub for innovation and development. Well, and, and what's interesting to me is that uh, one of the things that you've been working on, of course, is the Great Lakes Impact Investment Platform. Uh, you've already got about $4 billion in sustainability projects that are that are underway, uh, really, and over, just over the past 1.5 years. And I'm wondering... What you think in terms of the ceiling on this, in terms of the amount of money that can be attracted to things that are actually going to help with the sustainability of, of the region and the planet, frankly? Well, there's been a remarkable shift in the global financial community from seeking return 
almost exclusively into all other, you know, looking at instead of anything else, you know, how much money can this make me to trying to connect those opportunities for return with a value-based outcome, whatever it may be, improvement for the environment, uh, social improvement or or something else. Uh, So this space has just exploded in the last couple of decades, uh, $17 trillion, unbelievable, uh, that is being currently invested in sustainable, responsible, and impact investing in the U.S. Uh, the similar figure globally is $35 trillion, and that's up 50% in just the last five years. And the trajectory is off the charts. So you can see more and more that these are the opportunities people are looking for. The challenge has been delivering opportunities, uh, investable deals, and what does that look like? So our Great Lakes Impact Investment Platform is a way that we can showcase a collection of successful projects that are seeking to provide both that financial return to investors and an environmental improvement connected to water. We think if we get this right, water is really our sweet spot where we can, if managed correctly, use it to generate wealth in perpetuity. Well, you know, you you talked about the lack of quote unquote shovel ready projects that were out there when this first got started. But now you've got a situation where, look, our our hand is being forced. If you look at the the impact that we've had from from uh, storm situations here in in this region just over the summer alone, there's clearly a huge need for infrastructure improvements, uh, not just in Detroit, where I am, but pretty much all over the region. Uh, You know, we were watching last night on Monday Night Football, as a matter of fact, the freeways in Green Bay were underwater as a result of a storm that typically wouldn't have been that significant a few years ago, but it is now. Uh, And do you think that these events are actually going to help you in furthering the mission? Well, uh, Rahm Emanuel used to like to say, never let a good crisis go to waste. (laughs) (laughs) You are in Illinois after all. So yeah, there you go. That's right. So there there is something to that. But I I think the reality is that we do have more extreme weather events. And we look at climate change and the unpredictability of the future weather and the huge amount of investment that is needed to restore and repair our water systems, our stormwater management systems, and so on. So I think it is almost a necessity that we look to give utility operators and others more tools in their toolkit to attract the monies that they need. The capacity of the federal government is not infinite. And as a as a regional economy, we generate $6 trillion annually. It's the third largest economy in the world, if it were its own country. So we ought to be able to generate the kinds of uh, resources that can support the infrastructure that we need. And think about it differently. It's not just pipes delivering water. It's pipes that are connected to energy systems for treatment, that are connected to source water, that are connected to a pipe on the back end where the wastewater is going. And how can we think about that cycle in a way that connects with investors and provides value to ratepayers? So they see it's not just about those pipes. It's about improving the waters uh, of their community and creating recreational amenities and things that they can value and connect with more directly. Well, well, David, I think one of the problems that we've had in this country for a long time is not being able to see beyond just, you know, the hood of the car, but instead looking further down the road to how these types of investments now are going to make the, you know, the, are going to make it possible for these companies to thrive in perpetuity and for, for, you know, investments to continue to grow in perpetuity going forward. Uh, 
how hard is it to change people's minds beyond, and you, you hinted at this at the beginning, but how hard is it to change people's minds uh, away from looking for that immediate quick return to something that is going to be beneficial for everybody going forward? Well, I think we have to rely on the leading edge and demonstrate success. And we think success will become magnetic and snowball over time. So at first in this space, it was largely philanthropies, endowments, uh, investors that were willing to sacrifice the financial return for the environmental outcome. But more and more, we're seeing that that, uh, that trade-off doesn't have to be made. There are deals that are in the pipeline and uh, in market now that can offer competitive market rate returns connected with that value-based outcome, improvement to the Great Lakes. So we think a lot of place-based investors will be attracted to this. You know, I can invest my 401k anywhere I want. Why not do it in this region and have it connect with something I care about? So if we can demonstrate how this can work and work successfully, we really think that this is going to be uh, the future. And we're seeing it in the figures that I cited earlier in terms of the growth of this asset class. Uh, Just look at green bonds, for example. They didn't exist 10 years ago. $700 billion now annually are issued in green bonds. So if those are telling and predictive of what the future could look like, uh, we could be just getting started. Well, and, and I think people don't necessarily understand just how wide a range of investment opportunities there are out there for this sort of thing. I mean, it's not just, again, it's not just about water. We tend to focus a lot on that because, you know, it impacts us in so many different ways. But I'm looking at the projects that you have underway already in places like Buffalo and Madison, Wisconsin, and, and uh, you know, here in Michigan with DTE, uh, upgrading the electrical grid with wind and solar. I mean, there is so much different stuff that's potentially out there. Um do you guys feel confident in the projects you have out there right now are going to sort of demonstrate uh, really, you know, the, the potential uh, for these projects and, and frankly, the impact they're going to have? We do. And we've had a terrific group of partners. The Nature Conservancy in Michigan uh, designed the environmental metrics. So every project on our platform, now three dozen of them, will be required annually to report the environmental outcomes. And those are against metrics that were developed by the Nature Conservancy. Uh, So there's accountability, there's transparency, and that is the connection back to the investor to say, did what you say was going to happen, happen? And not just my financial statement, but the environmental statement, if you want to think of it that way. So the interesting thing is all the, the diverse opportunities. It's not just water infrastructure, but it's forestry that's connected to water. It's agriculture that's connected to water. It's energy that ultimately connects to water and air, of course. Uh, and the financial innovation is occurring. I mentioned green bonds. Environmental impact bonds is another really exciting tool that utilities can take advantage of. It's effectively a performance contract, uh, but it's a different way that they can raise capital to invest in projects. Uh, And I could cite other examples as well, but I think you get the idea, which is this is a space that's uh, busy innovating and giving new tools to those that are looking for uh, resources to make projects happen. Well, you mentioned, of course, having uh, somebody on board from the environmental community. I I think it was the Nature Conservancy you mentioned here. Uh, How important is it to have stakeholders at the table when you're talking about these kinds of projects? Uh, Because 
without that input from them as to whether or not, you know, they feel that this is actually going to be beneficial, uh, you might get some resistance that you otherwise don't if they have a seat at the table. It seems that you have conscientiously chosen to include as many people as possible. I think it's critical uh, because when you're approaching a new idea, you need to establish credibility uh, because we come with a certain background and orientation. Our partners have a different one. And the Nature Conservancy, uh, with its scientific background and its deep connection uh, to environmental work over decades, uh, can demonstrate that this is not uh, a greenwashing exercise, but rather a, a sincere effort to try to identify meaningful environmental goals and outcomes. Uh, similarly, we've partnered with the University of Michigan uh, Center for Smart Infrastructure Finance and the School of Environmental Environment and Sustainability. Uh, where the expertise is deep in terms of financial markets and financial innovation. Uh, similarly, we've worked with ECT uh, based out of Michigan uh, that's expert in communications, engineering, and project design. So collectively, we can bring the tools that are needed to the table, the credibility with the partners that we want to work with, and the organizations that have stepped up to provide projects for the Great Lakes Impact Investment Platform uh, are real leaders, uh, whether it's the Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewerage District, uh, DTE Electric, uh, the Nature Conservancy, or Let's Industries in Detroit uh, that's got a really cool project building a green roof, providing all kinds of benefits for the community. Yeah, the green roof thing I first saw, I believe, on a on a Ford Motor Company plant expansion over at the Rouge plant several years ago uh, with the sedum plants and everything else, and it's been a pretty remarkable success. Uh, well, David, you know, again, your job is the executive director for the Great Lakes, St. Lawrence governors and premiers government relations. Uh, again, I mentioned the herding cats at the beginning of this, but this is a truly international effort. What is uh, is there a big difference in terms of the priority that different regions or different governments are putting on some of these projects? Or is there some sort of uniformity in the need of this across both, you know, all the different states we have here that are involved in this and, and the premiers in Canada? or the, the provinces in Canada? I think there's a uniformity in terms of the need and the challenge. There's a significant diversity in terms of the tools and the ways that problems might get solved. Uh, Canada, for example, does a lot of their infrastructure financing through uh, the provinces, and uh, they have really well-developed green bonds, for example. Uh, they've been a leader uh, way ahead of where the states are. Um, you look at and some different elements. Uh, you know, Quebec has a very different profile of need given uh, the functioning of their hydroelectricity markets uh, relative to energy. Uh, so needs may be a little bit different, but the unifying factor is the water that connects us all. And as we learned working on the Great Lakes Compact, uh, the idea that what happens in Detroit affects what happens in Montreal and vice versa is a pretty powerful driver to bring people together and say, this is really a case where we have shared interests. We have to work together. We have to get this right. Uh, so how can we go about doing that? And we're hoping that we can uh, show a way that, that we can do that successfully, uh, bring people together, solve problems, and uh, work from there to work on other issues as well. 
Well, well, clearly you've already got a number of people who are interested in working with you to raise money for the projects that they're trying to do. Uh, but obviously there's a, a huge need out there. Uh, many, many different communities and, and uh, governmental entities need some help with figuring this stuff out. You've got a series of webinars coming up, and this is being recorded on a Tuesday. The first one is coming up on Thursday on water infrastructure. And then you've got another one coming up on October 1st about impact investing. Uh, another one coming up on a date to be determined on the economic development opportunity of carbon, which is an interesting concept because a lot of people think there isn't much opportunity there. But who are these designed for? Who do you want to show up at these webinars? The webinars are free and open to the public, and we welcome anyone who has an interest. Our expectation is that we'll get government officials, uh, environmental activists, uh, community organizers, uh, concerned citizens. Anyone that is interested in these topics is welcome to join us. Uh, we've got a terrific group of speakers and there's an opportunity to ask questions of them. So we really want to use these as a way to showcase the complexity of these issues, uh, introduce them to our audience and think about ways we can work together to solve some of our problems. Uh, we're trying to really turn those problems into opportunities and channel what may be frustration or uh, you know, resignation and change that around to how can we harness that energy and bring that to the problem, the problem in order to solve it. Well, before we wrap up, I do want to ask you a little bit about that because I mean, you know, there's obviously a huge debate that's still raging in some, some corners about, you know, the validity of, of climate science, everything else. We, and, and also oftentimes the way that the media portrays it is if we don't fix something immediately, we're all going to be in deep, deep trouble. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's an insurmountable problem, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's just going to be money out of our pockets. There is opportunity again out there. But I'm wondering if you think that the way that the media handles the issue of climate change is making your job more difficult, or, or is it at least bringing attention to the issue so you could have a bigger platform? Well, the the media is a pretty diverse community, as you know, Craig. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I, I would hesitate to try to categorize that in its totality, but I think uh, the media has done an effective job of alerting people to this issue of climate change. Uh, whether or not people agree on it is a separate matter, but I think we can all agree that weather has become less predictable. We could all benefit by looking at ways we can enhance resilience in our communities. We have real investments that need to be made now. And even if the solution for the problem as a whole may seem difficult or impossible to get our minds around, there are things we can do right now to make progress. And so we're trying to focus on those kinds of things because that step that we take initially together that works uh, leads to a second step and a third step and so on. And once we're on that path, then anything becomes possible. And so we think that's the way to try to approach this and our investment platform is just one example. Our work on the Great Lakes Compact is another. So we think we're, we're chipping away at some of the things that we need to, to do, even if a lot more needs to be done. Well, David, I, I want to give you an opportunity real quick to tell people where they should go if they want to check out these webinars, um, because, uh, it, again, it's, it's interesting stuff. It's not necessarily doom and gloom. There is opportunity here. If you, you know, if you think about this just a little bit differently, um, and, and I think that's one of the big things that David's trying to get done. So if people want to watch this, where do they go? Uh, you can go to our website, which is gsgp.org, and you can learn all about the webinars. We also have a series of action items that the governors and premiers have been working on uh, that are being released today. 
you also can learn more about the Great Lakes Impact Investment Platform at greatlakesimpactinvestmentplatform.org. And uh, you can learn about the projects, ways that you can get involved. If you think you might have a project that would connect with what we're trying to do, we'd welcome the opportunity to talk with you. Yeah, it certainly seems that there might be a lot of units of government out there that are like, oh, is there a possibility I could get some of the money I need to help with this? Uh, Public-private partnerships are going to be the the most method of the future, I have a feeling. Well, David, we certainly appreciate your time, and we wish you luck. We'll be watching, and uh, you know, uh, keep us up to date on your progress. Will do. Thanks for having me, and thanks to everyone who's listened today. Again, thanks to David Nafsker for joining us on the program today. We really do appreciate you tuning in. And he's right. He said thank you to all of you who listened today. And I do appreciate it very, very much. We have a number of you that seem to enjoy this program. I certainly do appreciate that. And uh, it's going to be a busy week. Like I said, I've got some material coming up for tomorrow's show. Should be a really good uh, conversation that I'm expecting with Mark Burton, who is now with Honigman, but ran the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. Uh, and took over that job right as the uh, pandemic was starting. So talk about a difficult challenge. Uh, They had to figure out how to marshal all those federal dollars that came in in a way that was actually going to do some good and and help a lot of businesses survive. So we should get something out of that conversation tomorrow. Looking forward to it. Uh, We're going to check in with Nancy again as well. And, And keep in mind, on Friday... It is the week that was on Deadline Detroit. I will be back hosting this one. This time, unfortunately, Nancy Derringer is going to be gone, but Alan Lingle will be back and with us, along with a couple of new guests, I do believe, which I'm looking forward to. So that's Fridays. We do it live at 1130 on my Facebook page, on both of my Facebook pages, both my page and the Craig Folly Shows page. So if you can't join me as a friend uh, because I'm at that limit that they put in there, you can always follow the Craig Folly Show and watch it from there live at 1130 or watch it on Deadline Detroit's YouTube page. And don't forget, it's available at DeadlineDetroit.com as soon as it's over pretty much. And I make it available as a podcast early in the afternoon each Friday. It doesn't take me very long to get that posted. So if you preferred the audio version, which I know many of you do, that's fine. I appreciate it. But we put it out there live just in case you want something kind of fun to check out on your lunch hour on a Friday or to take your mind off the fact that you still have four hours to go on a Friday before you get to ditch for the weekend. Either way, it's okay. Hey, stay dry out there, everybody. Uh, Keep those basements dry if you can. We've had enough of this stuff, uh, but we got another day's worth of it. So hang in there, and I will see you again tomorrow. Thanks. Thanks.